Welcome to the Gateworld Podcast. This is episode number 60 of the Gateworld Podcast. I'm Darren. I'm David. And this is a show where two big fans talk about Stargate. I'm not big. I'm festively plump. We've got some Stargate news. We've got some Gateworld features to catch you up on just a little bit. And then we have a preview of Gateworld's upcoming interview with Stargate DVD Special Features producer Ivan Bartok, one of our good friends. And then for our main discussion topic today, we're talking about Stargate fan fiction. And we have a very special guest in Louisa Robison, who will be coming on to talk with us in just a few minutes. Mr. David, how are you doing? I am well, yourself. I'm doing pretty good. I'm in a good mood. Good. Shall we do some news? Let's do it. Stargate News. Here are your headlines from GateWorld for September 16th, 2009. If you're like me and you don't have the Sci-Fi Channel, you're looking for Stargate Universe online. It will be on iTunes, and right now you can go pre-buy the entire season pass. It's in the iTunes store in the U.S. for $35.99 for the entire season, if you want to buy the standard definition. They also have the high-definition Stargate Universe Season pass for fifty three ninety nine. Individual episodes, if you want to go piecemeal, are going to be about two bucks for standard and three bucks for HD. So you'll save a little bit. The final season of Stargate Atlantis will be heading into syndication in the United States on local broadcasts the weekend of September nineteenth and twentieth. That will be Search and Rescue. That's this weekend. Yes, very soon. Those of you who haven't seen it, beware. Those of you who have already seen it and want to see it again, beware also. Jewel State went from recurring to full-time cast member in this season. Robert Picardo took over as uh, Atlantis uh, Expedition leader. So if you haven't seen it yet, I apologize. I kind of spoiled a couple of things for you. Uh, well, it's been out there for a while. We've got the full schedule for the season from MGM. All, every single week that there's a new episode in syndication, you can find it now uh, on GateWorld. And there are still people who watch... The show in syndication for the very first time. I was just home visiting my aunts and uncles and cousins, and I've got an uncle who is watching Atlantis in syndication right now. Yay! So That's I had to one. Be careful not to spoil anything for him, but uh, there you go. Robert Carlyle was recently interviewed on the UK morning program this morning. We've got the video clip up on GateWorld right now for you to watch. It's about nine minutes long. Uh, interesting stuff. He talks about uh, the show and his character and relocating his family to Vancouver. Uh, he's there about nine months out of the year, but he still considers himself uh, a resident of, of Scotland. This was interesting one to watch, A, because there are new clips of Stargate in here. There's a really cool tense scene between uh, Carlisle's character, Dr. Rush, and uh, Ronald Greer, played by Jamil Walker-Smith. It's uh, a cool scene. It's got me even more excited for SGU. Uh, some people have commented on this story. I think it's interesting. There's sort of a different vibe between UK morning programs and US morning programs. I mean, it's all kind of, in my opinion, inane chatter. But they do things a little bit differently, so it's interesting. Check it out. Gateworld Features. GateWorld Screen Capture Gallery is expanding. This week saw the introduction of SG-1 Season 9 DVD Special Features Screen Captures. 4,000 images from Season 9 DVD Special Features are wow. now up on the site. Yes, busy, busy. 
I also realized that I forgot uh, Children of the Gods Final Cut. Those were supposed to launch with that week's additions, but I guess the swine flu will really get you down from that. Uh, so I added those in. Now you can see those in the special features, uh, DVD special features section. Well, last week on the Friday of Five, I finally got around to doing the top five space battles. And this was tough because thinking about some of the big, big battle sequences in the history of Stargate SG-1 and Atlantis, I realized a lot of them take place on the ground, so I sort of had to disqualify them. Um, The Siege would definitely have made this list, the scene that that you've described as Baghdad. uh, Yes. I think it's in the Siege Part 2. But that's a a battle that takes place in the atmosphere, so I disqualified it. I probably should have put the Siege Part 3 in here, which a lot of people have pointed out to me. There's a space battle, obviously, when the Daedalus shows up. Yes. um, You know, my top five, number five, was Enemy at the Gate, the last episode of Atlantis, and a lot of people have criticized Enemy at the Gate, that, that battle sequence, because there were some logical issues. But uh, I don't know. I thought it was pretty cool. It was cool to see Atlantis really in the action as a ship. Now, it seems kind of implausible to me to have you know, buildings with that sort of superstructure that they can handle flying around and being in battle. It's in space. There's no friction. Okay. So this week on the Friday Five, we will be doing cool ancient tech. Our five favorite ancient devices. Expect a brand new interview, GateWorld's first interview with DVD special features producer Ivan Bartok. I loved that name the first time I heard it. I still love it now. Wasn't he the little bat in Anastasia? I have no clue. All I remember was... Excuse me, ma'am. Did you say ten dimensions? He was Richard Dean Anderson and Michael Greenberg's assistant, and he made a cameo appearance in the episode Prodigy in season four of SG-1. I did not know that. Then he moved on to a DVD special features producer. And in the Stargate universe, he is known as Mr. Kino for all of the additional Kino scenes being filmed for the show that you'll be able to find online. So here's a preview of this discussion. It's nice to come to a new show with sort of a new style, new cast, sort of a new feeling. This is kind of the exciting part of, 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 of SGU, I think, is that there's a lot of interesting stuff to cover. And then also, it's still Stargate, so there's some, you know, some interesting things to, to sort of look back on. I know that the, a piece that, we're, that I just, you know, one of the sort of quick pieces, because they're all sort of quick pieces this year for the first uh, 10 anyway, we had to redo the, uh, the Koosh this year. And it's yeah. actually a really, really interesting, interesting process on how that's created. So that's a, that's a piece that I think the fans might dig from a sort of technical perspective. So you try to get a little bit of technical perspective or technical pieces, and then you try to cover, you know, do as much as you can with the cast, you know, because, I mean, that's who, when I watch DVD special features, and uh, I love, you know, and but I also don't, this is the thing, I don't particularly love pieces that are just, um, you know, that sort of very sort of formula and very sort of official, you know, and you mm-hmm. sit down and chat and you ask the questions you've heard all the time. That's always going to happen. You're going to ask those questions. But ultimately, too, you try to, for me, it's important to try to get some some sort of intimate moments with the cast on set or actually talking about what's going on at a particular time. I find that interesting. I still do when I watch DVD special features, you know, like if you're watching a, uh, not that I, you know, whatever, it's a feature film and you actually can talk to the cast member on the set while he's about, about ready to go and, and work and he tells you what's going on. I, I find that pretty interesting. The main discussion. Our special guest today is Louisa Robison, who holds a degree in communications from Athabasca University, and her thesis title, I love this, David, the title of the thesis is Gilgamesh and Enkido, Arthur and Gwynefar, Alexander and Hephaestion, Tristan and Isolde, Jack and Daniel, retelling epic myth through the medium 
of fan fiction, and she's now a graduate student in library science at the University of Alberta. Louisa, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Our topic tonight is fan fiction, and I don't consider myself an expert on fan fiction. Darren doesn't consider himself an expert on fan fiction. At the very least, we needed someone who was well-read in fan fiction. That would be me then, yes. I've read a little bit of fan fiction, and I think that uh, several years ago I tried my hand at writing something and got about a page into it before I decided it was not my medium. So we knew that fan fiction is such a huge part of fandom, and certainly of Stargate fandom. We needed to talk about it on the podcast, but of course David and I are not quite entirely competent. So are you a Stargate fanfic writer yourself? Oh, start with the loaded questions. Um, I'd rather not answer that question. <laughs> you don't have to give away <laughs> your screening. Okay, yes. But I only want one right to one very specific pairing, and not very often at all. Thinking about this topic, I kind of, you know, I have my general opinions of fan fiction and the role that it plays in fandom, and I kind of compare it to what I do as my contribution to fandom, which is make a website. That is exactly what you're doing. You're you're gaining your own cultural capital in this subculture, this this fan culture of Stargate, uh, where. We, as fan writers, write and gain our reputation, our cultural capital, our acceptance into the subculture. You've done the same thing. You've just chosen a different method of going about it. Well, now, you mentioned this term, cultural capital. Uh, Tell us what that is about. I believe that was from Boudreau, who uh, compared it to economics, the economic culture where you go out and you earn your living or you're born into it and you have money or you acquire money and by through that money you acquire power. Artistic culture, of course, doesn't use money, it uses reputation. And that's how you acquire your cultural capital as opposed to your economic capital is through your reputation, through your knowledge, through what people know of you and what you know of your milieu, your your specific little subject. Painters have their, their own cultural capital within the within the uh, art world and writers and poets and singers and and us. Well it requires for you to be recognized, you know, which I mean, you need someone to have a look at your fanfic and then grow a fan base that is interested in the stuff that you do. You can't just like drop in there on the scene. You have to establish yourself from somewhere. You have to start from some point and then work your way out. But that's exactly what you can do because in my own specific case, I was reading for quite a while because I've stumbled across this, this people writing fiction about actually it was in the house fandom. And it was people writing stories about this. What the heck is going on here? And I mm-hmm. read and I read and I read. And then I went, oh, well, I can do this. And I wrote one and just dropped it right in the middle of the, of, the, uh, of the live journal community. And I had never posted there before. I didn't even have an account before I did that. And I dropped it in there. And all of a sudden, boom, I've got my own capital uh, acquired because I dropped the story in there. And people went, oh, you're a new writer. Hey, this is really good. And they left me a whole pile of feedback, which, wow. by the way, it's addictive like crack. They're not kidding. Feedback is? It really is. It's instant adrenaline. <gasps> Somebody liked my stuff. Yeah, and I feel the same way even about the website. Even just, you know, the stuff that I write is typical day-to-day is like a news story. It's not like really tremendously creative exercise. But, uh, you know, I watch and wait for that feedback for people to post comments. And, yeah, it's it's like crack, yeah. But when I think about, again, about fan fiction, I think of it largely in terms of creative expression um, which is what I think is, is a big part of it. Um, I'm really interested in this idea uh, that you have in your paper about uh, things like cultural capital and the importance of feedback and, and uh, capital being, being like uh, 
uh, cachet or, or reputation within a, a subgroup, a subculture, in this case being Stargate fans or, or whatever it is the fandom that you happen to be writing fanfic for? Well, actually, that's Henry Jenkins' idea, so I can't actually uh, take credit for that one. Yes, but... yes, but you introduced me to it, so... <laughs> oh, okay. Well, then, you're welcome. <laughs> fandom as a subculture cannot exist, of course, without the people in it, right? Uh-huh. And the people in it cannot exist as a culture without some common ground some common topic of discussion and it has to it has to go beyond hey did you like last week's show yeah i really did there has to be more to it than that and this giving out of artistic expression and uh, acquiring feedback from it gives the culture more common ground abigail de rocho wrote that all body of literature belongs to an archontic body of literature in which anything that is built upon from the original piece contributes to that body of work. It doesn't take away from it, contributes to. And I believe, anyway, personally, and this is all my own opinion, please don't blame me, okay? Uh, I believe that fan fiction is produced and can contribute to that body of literature, that body of, of Stargate stories, rather than taking away from it. This is an interesting topic, I think. there's When you talk about fan fiction, it's... It's uh, these issues come up in terms of you know copyright and ownership and um, oh, there's... playing in somebody else's playground using characters that somebody else has created and you talk in your paper about how it's sort of subversive by nature uh, or there's there's some people who have the opinion that it is subversive. You talk about uh, Michelle de Charteau who talked about uh, fan fiction authors as textual poachers. I love that that term textual poachers. The quotation is that they, quote, move across lands belonging to someone else, like nomads, poaching their way across fields. They did not write, despoiling the wealth of Egypt to enjoy it themselves. This idea of plundering the Egyptians is, is something that uh, is is interesting to me, that you, you sort of, of uh, take the best elements of, of, in this case, Stargate, that you like, and you work with that. You work with those characters. You work with those scenarios. You ask those what-if questions. And fanfic authors deal with things that intrigue them, that grab them in a particular episode, and can sort of push the rest of it off to the side. Yes, and while they are using specific characters and specific settings and sometimes even specific storylines, you know, they write uh, a fix at the end because the, the writers didn't do their characters justice or whatever, and they want to wrap up a storyline or push it back to where they want it to be, you know, where... I'm thinking specifically of uh, slash episodes like uh, McKay and, and Shepard, you know, where if they fight in the episode, then somebody will write a tag that's, that, that has them making up. So in that in that sense, yes, they're they're poaching it and they're they're stealing it and turning it into something that was never ever meant. And you know, other stories as well, where you can take these characters and put them into other epic settings, where they're they're taking these characters and okay, they're not even paying copyright fees really. They are poaching, they're stealing it. But where is the line between stealing and derivation? Hmm. Where does uh, Bridget, Stone, Bridget Jones' diary end and Pride and Prejudice, Prejudice begin? Yeah, there, or, or uh, Shakespeare's Hamlet and Tom Stoppard's Rosencrantz and Guildenstern Rosencrantz are dead. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, right, exactly. So there's there's a very, very gray line there, and I will admit to, to a lot of fanfic writers will just stomp right all over that line and keep <laughs> on dancing. But until somebody actually defines where that line is, can you actually say that we're stealing things? lovingly borrowing for the most part but i don't know about stealing well and you know i'm a library worker so copyright is very very high up on my list of things that show up not step on right right but you know in 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 these terms where does that copyright end you know if i want to write a story and i have a character named john shepherd who used to be a pilot is that stealing from the character i like this idea that it's it's sort of adding to to the mythology to what it is i mean we we differentiate between canon 
and Fanon and, Fanon. and yes. something else that's, I don't know, not even Fanon, that's just one person's uh, dream. But uh, <laughs> this idea that you know, there's a canonical part of the show, the writers are entrusted with these characters and, and telling the quote-unquote official stories, but there is a broader universe that lots of other people can contribute to. Um, obviously, there are official ways of going about that, uh, which uh, we'll talk about in a few minutes. We'll talk about the novels of Stargate, uh, which started with fan fiction authors. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, there's also an, an unofficial, I don't know if you would say under-the-table way of, of going about it. An under-the-table way, definitely. But then again, I have a wall full of Star Trek novels who were all based on the original Star Trek. Yep. That essentially come down to them being fan fiction. That's all they are. Only somebody got paid to write it. Yep. They're derivative. They're just officially endorsed by the, the people who own the copyright. Mm-hmm. Let's get some of our listener mail in here. We got a lot of responses to this, and we can only include a few today. I'll just bet you did. We did. Atri says, fanfic adds to the experience of enjoying a TV series. Have you never asked yourself what happened to Clone Jack or Jonas or even Mayborn? Fanfic can give you a possible answer. That's what fanfic is all about, possibilities, alternatives. That's also why I read and write fanfiction. What would have happened had the Atlantis expedition not made contact with Earth? How would they have survived? What would their society be like in five, in ten years? What would a meeting between them and Earth look like? These are questions you can't address in the show because they're not asked. But they're nevertheless asked by fans, and fans give those who want it a possible answer. One of the early fanfics that I remember reading when I first got into Stargate ten years ago was um, a follow-up story. I love these follow-up stories where fans watch an episode and they are left with a lingering question. And they'll go write not a big long novel, but a scene, basically. uh, Episode tags. Answering some of that. Episode tags. So this one was was for Jolinar's memories in The Devil You Know. I think it was uh, a story of Sam just processing what had happened to her and coming coming to terms a little bit more with the, the memories of Jolinar that, that had been brought to the surface by the Toker technology. Well, and that's exactly what fan fiction is for. It's for exploring those possibilities that the producers don't have the money or the time or the characters or whatever to, 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 to explore on their own because, of course, you know, making an episode is ungodly expensive. Writing a fanfic is free. It's d- distributing a fanfic is free. Now it's free anyway. Sure. So when you've got this world of possibilities that can be explored, now it can be explored. Why not explore it? Why not look at all the different possibilities and give a possible ending for each one or ongoing stories for forever? Because the possibility is there. And sci- especially science fiction fans are so, so involved in fandom, so involved in the, their characters, their stories, their worlds, that we want to see this. We want to know what someone else thought of this ending and how it could mm-hmm. possibly have been different. And we go looking for it, and guess what? We find it. We find hundreds. They're out there. They're all I, out there. I think it's really interesting uh, here. There's a point here about who writes fanfic, and the answer is uh, 90% women. Uh, this quote here that, that Darren's pulled, women rewrite the popular culture stories in order to obtain from them that which they do not get in the canon stories such as a woman's point of view or an emotional story. That's Henry Jenkins. Largely, uh, the Stargate writing team has been a boys' club over the course of over a decade now. They've had a couple of writers, but generally not. Do you think that that's pretty legitimate, that fanfic gives uh, an opportunity for women to write their side, their take on uh, on reactions uh, on these characters? To some extent, yes. And I will say that that 90% figure is at least... 12 years old, it could have changed since then. But almost all of the women, uh, writers that I know are women, with the exception of two gay men. So 
yes, I would have to say that it is overwhelmingly uh, women. So it's a very and feminine thing, shall we Extremely, say. <laughs> extremely it is. Because, and that's exactly why, because the producers of Stargate, Star Trek, Farscape, you name them, all of them, they're all men. And they all, even while they're trying to tell a woman's story, it's still from a man's point of view of what he thinks a woman wants to see. And overwhelmingly, he is wrong, <laughs> wrong, wrong, wrong. Now, this could be a, a, a whole a different podcast, but just out of curiosity, do you, do you think that there is a particular female character on Stargate that the writers have written well? You think they've all been written poorly? <laughs> I'm just trying to think. You know, they've all been written rather on a mediocrely, I would say. Is that even a word? Maybe Carter in the later years. Vala was was too much of the sex kitten thing, you know, and mm. frankly, a lot of women were jealous of her. Um, are you saying this from a perspective as a woman that you would not want to see these things portrayed, or are you saying this from a perspective as a woman that this is not true of what women think? Yes and yes and possibly no. Pause that for a good answer. Claudia Black, as she was portrayed on Farscape, was a far superior portrayal of a woman than she was on Stargate, I think. Yeah, I would certainly agree with that. Well, keep in mind, in both cases, she's portraying an alien. Yes, but she's still mostly human and still female. I don't know. I think maybe femininity is, is possibly at least somewhat universal. Terrell Rothery, uh, the doctor. Janet Fraser. Thank you, Fraser. Fraser was portrayed well, I think, as a female. Mm. And that's simply because she was portrayed as being in control. She wasn't flighty. She wasn't uh, willing to toss her career away because some general smiled at her. She wasn't constantly trying to get some man's attention. Calm, control. I mean, that may be true, but isn't it a little bit boring? Isn't it kind of threatening dull? Welcome to real life. <laughs> yeah, but it's not real life. This is entertainment. That's, no, this, this is, is not true. supposed to be real life. This is supposed to be a getaway experience. I mean, if I want real life, I'll go out and sit on the street. I want to see people like me, people similar to me, some people not like me, thrust into extraordinary situations. Oh, my God, what would I do? You know, that, that kind of a thing. I want that kind of reaction. I want to see those reactions play out on screen. And then if I don't like um, what I saw on screen, then I'll, then I'll sulk and write about it. <laughs> <laughs> and I would go so far as to say that that's a typically male way of looking at it. Okay. Think of the shows that are aimed towards women. There's soaps and romance stories and Hallmark Channel and things like that, right? This brings up an interesting question for me, which is if this is the uh, the portrayal of women on television, uh, Stargate specifically, but television perhaps in general, uh, with a few important notable exceptions, don't want to be too generalizing, uh, is the shoe on the other foot when it comes to fan fiction? If, if fanfic is written by 90% women, uh, what do we think of their portrayal of men? in fan fiction. David, I know you haven't read a whole lot of it, but from what I've seen, it tends to be, you know, the men tend to be either uh, shipped with one another or shipped with a woman and then written in a very romanticized, very tender They're uh, feminized, yes. Way. It's feminized very men. emotional. Yeah. The heartstrings are pulled a lot. And, you know, I always wanted to tell you this, so I'm going to tell you it now. Exactly. They turn the men into teenage, teenage girls for the most part. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking specifically of Torchwood. Jack... Harkness and Yanto Jones. Uh, a lot of a lot of the fiction that I've read, and I won't say all of it, of course, but a lot of the fiction that I've read of theirs turns Yanto into this poor, pining, teary, <laughs> weepy teenage girl, who's who of who's who's going. You know, Jack doesn't love me. Jack isn't staying around. Jack won't ask me to stay the night. Oh my god! Oh my god! I'm going to kill myself. Not true to the character, I take it. <laughs> the character is a 25 year old man. <laughs> 
I'm fairly sure, I mean, it's been a while since I've been 25, but they're fairly sure that they did not run around crying and weeping because their boyfriend didn't ask them to spend the night. Now, see, these are the kinds of things that we don't think about, you know? I mean, that doesn't go through my mind. Oh, how did he feel about me? How how did this? Now, maybe because this character is gay, maybe he would think that, so I'm not sure. We don't go around pining about, you know, what what could have been different? What What could I have said? You know? <laughs> yeah, I think Luis is exactly right. That it's 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 almost like you know these are the intense uh, obsessive emotions that we had when we were sixteen and in love. They they revolve more much more around the emotional storylines, the emotional impacts of the storylines, the just the emotions in general, which of course science fiction does not generally get into because it's more action oriented. Of course, it's just the way that the genre works, right? It, it's it's action, but. Women, as science fiction fans, want to see the emotions. Yeah, we love the action and the adventure and the shoot 'em up and look, there goes the wormhole and whatever. But we also want to see how people feel about different things. Like um, when McKay did not propose to Katie Brown, mm-hmm. we never saw a follow-up from that. We never saw how Katie felt about it. All we got was a throwaway line in Trio. Right. We never saw how Katie felt about it, how McKay might have felt about it, how... Any of it was dealt with. It was just there. It was there, and then it's not. Yeah, and it was three more episodes before McKay had to basically be told that he had broken up with her. Exactly. So, and this, this I don't know, actually, but I'm fairly sure that doesn't happen in real life, where if you were almost proposed to someone and then don't, everything is dropped. That just doesn't happen. There's emotional fallout, and there is almost no emotional fallout in science fiction specifically, and, of course, star- in Stargate. Well, you have a limited amount of time to tell a story, and a lot of those scenes get cut by the wayside. They exactly. are on the cutting room floor. They, they right. were created, but they don't move the story forward. And if you want to see emotional follow, you watch All My Children. Yes. Well, yeah, we've talked, if you've, if you've listened to the podcast all that much, we've talked again and again, especially with Universe coming up, about the fact that SG-1 and Atlantis were largely action adventure shows, and so it's those character moments that, that end up getting cut. And uh, it seems to me that that's what fanfic does mostly. I don't know. You might even say it's what fanfic does best. I don't read action-adventure fanfics all that... I don't see them all that often. They're out there. Yeah, but it's, it seems to be like... Correct me if I'm wrong. It's mostly uh, the, the internal character dialogue and the, the, the one-on-one character moments that if the writers wrote it into the episode, it got cut for time. Very much so, yes. Spinal Breakers says, I think fanfics are okay as long as it keeps to the main run of the show and doesn't explore some over-the-top scenario like Janet hooking up with everyone. Yes, Terrell has read that one and met the writer. To keep to the main run of the show negates the point of fanfiction, which is to explore the other alternatives, the other options. Yeah, mm-hmm. so there's some fanfiction that is, what was the term you used? It's, it's episode tags. Episode tags, yes. That maybe stay with more within the realm of, of the established characterizations. And then there's there's alternate stories. There's the what-if questions. And mm-hmm. Some of those have to do with, you know, what if this person was just in a relationship with this other person? A lot of it, yeah. The the episode tags, I as far as I have read, make up a very, very small portion of, mm-hmm. of the body that's out there. Because there's really not a whole lot you can do with the story between episodes... And there's one writer who's actually written an episode tag for, uh, and she's a she's a slash fan uh, of Atlantis, so I'll let you figure out the characters from there. She has written an episode tag for every episode of Atlantis season two, and the 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 subplot story that she's got going in those episode tags 
is, is really quite fascinating. I mean, you, of course, never see that in the actual episodes, but what she's got going in the episode tags, if you really want to, how is it they put it, uh, look at the episode with flash goggles, you could see this going on. But episode tags aren't so much what people want to get out of fan fiction. They want to get the alternate, what they haven't seen on the screen. Mac Jackson says, I think fan fiction can be fun when done right. When being respectful to the series, it can even fill in the scene gaps that fans want to see, which is what we've been talking about. He also says, you have the choice to accept it as canon or not. As far as Slash goes, I can't stand it. It only serves as someone's twisted fantasy and only disrespects the characters. What do we think about that? You can't get anyone to say, well, you know, that's not possible. I can't. How can you possibly see that? That didn't exist. Well, no, that's not fair. Maybe this other person was only focusing on those elements and they saw that subtext. That doesn't make it right. That doesn't make it wrong. That's just what they as a viewer see. That's why they write that sort of thing because that's what they're attracted to. Louisa. <laughs> Possibly, yes, I would have to agree with you a little bit, but I respectfully disagree with Mac Jackson quite a lot. There's a lot of, especially in Slash, queer culture reflected in Slash. Don't ask, don't tell. The policy of the uh, American military right. mm-hmm. is it features very, very heavily in Slash in Stargate between uh, Jack and Daniel, Jack's in the military, between McKay and Shepard, Shepard's in the, in the military, between Lorne and Parrish, uh, which one? Lorne is in the military. They're using Slash to reflect on one's culture that doesn't get a lot of press, that doesn't get a lot of light, because queer culture is very insular. Nobody likes to talk about it very much, especially with people who don't know anything about queer culture because they call it, what was it he said, twisted fantasy, mm. which I think is actually disrespectful to uh, homosexuals, actually. Mm. Now, granted, we know that none of these characters are gay, or at least according to the show, none of them are gay. But does it really mean that they couldn't be? Not necessarily. But, you know, I keep thinking of this quote from... There was an episode of Star Trek Voyager where, where Tuvok and Paris were talking about continuing this um, this story that, that Tuvok had started. And in order to make the characters believable, for me, and in order to make it seem real, is you cannot have a character suddenly go completely outside of absolutely everything that makes them who they are. The actions that they take in any story should flow from their established traits. Otherwise, it's no longer that person. Now, you know, you look at the the episode, uh, like the Broca Divide, you know, where the characters clearly do things that they they wouldn't normally do because they are under the influence of an alien toxin. But besides that, you know, if you suddenly, if I open a fanfic and I, and I suddenly see Jack and Daniel go into a room and start, start <laughs> kissing one another, th- that makes no sense because that's not how the characters are on the screen. Jack and Daniel, when it comes to them having one-on-one conversations, are generally very uncomfortable with one another. They have a hard time communicating with each other because they're so different. Mm-hmm. So to have them do this suddenly makes no sense, just completely destroys the believability of it because what they are doing is not flowing from their established traits. And according to the show, no, that's not established. But there's a very, very large body of fan fiction that says they are. Yeah. Oh, that's now because I know. those people see that. I don't know that they see it or that they wish it. Yeah, not that they necessarily think it's there when they watch episodes, although I think some people probably do, but that they're, as as we have said, exploring an, an alternative possibility. A lot of it is wishing to see a relationship of equals. The common wisdom is that the portrayal of romantic relationships on shows is that the men have the power and the women don't. So any relationship involves 
a man having power over a woman and the woman being weak, subverted, subjugated under the man. Now what we have is two men who are equal. They're equal in power, they're equal in status. So seeing that relationship of two equals rather than one who has power over the other is actually quite appealing to mm. women, especially if they don't have the power in their own lives. This idea that uh, a lot of what fan fiction does is a retelling of myth. And we talk about how our favorite Stargate characters are sort of archetypal. Uh, and, and so you can see how, how fan fiction authors might want to poke at those archetypes, maybe turn them upside down, turn them on their heads, or just, just take them and run with them and explore this epic or that epic uh, from ancient historical myth through a Stargate lens. I mean, it's, it's what the writers do on screen a whole lot. Especially with Stargate, they're exploring things like Arthurian mythology. And gods and goddesses and everything. Gilgamesh and uh, Odyssey and these uh, you know, biblical themes that, that might be sewn in subtly into an episode, not necessarily told explicitly. You talk in your paper about explicitly telling myths, like actually casting Jack and Daniel as these characters from, from a certain story and, and retelling it. Fairy tales especially. Uh, fairy tales and epic myths. and mm -hmm. Wizard of Oz. It goes back to acquiring that capital. Because these stories were told around campfires and at gatherings and traveling bards would go around and tell these stories and they would gain their, their reputation and probably a meal and a bed for the night. And now we're doing the same thing. We tell these same stories using the characters or, or the, the settings or you know, not even using the settings, just throwing them directly into a fairy tale setting and use them to acquire our own subcultural capital in this case. So our fan fiction authors are, are almost like the bards of our of our society in, a, in an interesting way. Um, you know, if you went and, and had no television and no DVDs on a desert island and, and were living with the natives and, and you were sitting around the campfire telling them stories, you might eventually get around to the story of this round ancient piece of technology that would send you to other planets and this team of people who went through it and had adventures. Absolutely. Uh, that fan fiction does it. Filking, uh, which is uh, folk songs based on, mm -hmm. on characters and that. There, there was an article that Jenkins wrote called Strangers No More We Sing, all about how the community comes together around singing these, these songs that other people have written, uh, writing as, as fan fiction, fan songs. And it, it it creates the community. It builds the community. It ties together the community. It's a real building experience, rather than the uh, science fiction fan sitting in his mother's basement with his Spock ears <laughs> on. Right? This is just not. Well, I mean, it possibly is true, but for the most part, which was not... never me, by the way. <laughs> it was Babylon oh, Five. While it may be true for for some few people, it is not true of the community in general because we use these these epic myths and these stories and these songs to create our community, if not physically at a convention or at a gathering or whatever, then virtually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think in many ways the, the phenomenon is, is similar and organically interconnected with the, the things that David and I spend our time on, making a website and, and having this, this uh, online discussion forum. It's community building. It's coming together to enjoy what we love. Well, that's the whole point of fanfic. I mean, I think that's one of the things that we have to wrap up before we finish this is, you know, why? Why fanfic? Why do people do – who cares? Why do people go to the trouble that they do? And that is to enhance our enjoyment of, of a franchise that we love or a show that we love or something like that 
and but also to perhaps understand the motive depending on the fanfic depending on whether or not you <laughs> that character couldn't do that or i can really <laughs> see that character doing that it enhances our love and and understanding of certain characters much better rather than writing a character from scratch that we haven't experienced for 214 hours it is of course much easier to build on the world that's already there and yeah. you know if you mm-hmm. if you've got families and jobs and things like this, and you don't have the time to devote to becoming a professional writer, and who's good enough to become a professional writer? There's very few comparatively, but there are also people who can dash off a, a good fic in you know six months, whatever, and and have it baited and put it up on their live journal or their their own site, and it's really good. It's good writing. It's good characterization. It conforms to the the characters as we've seen them. Mm-hmm. There's some really good stuff out there. There really is. There's also some terrifically heinous stuff out there that, oh, it's, it's terrible. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and yeah. Can, and you can tell why why they are doing this. The ones who are, and I'm generalizing again, the ones who are very, very good, who put out the stories that are really good, that people want to read over and over again, that bookmark and go back to read again, because they're good, they do it because they love the show. Mm-hmm. Because they love these characters so much, I have not to... necessarily because they had an agenda going. No, there, no, there's no agenda. Well, generally, isn't it an agenda? I shouldn't think. But some of them, you can tell when you read them that they're only doing this to get their name into the community. See what I've written, even though it's really, really bad. Yeah, look at me, worship me. Aren't I wonderful? Aren't I special? They misspell the characters' names. They get the places wrong. They're completely out of character. They've oh, I've only watched one episode. Here's a fic I wrote, sort of thing. Hmm. That brings us to a, an important final topic that I wanted to bring in here, which is professional, quote-unquote, fan fiction. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of us know that when, when Fandemonium picked up the license, one of the first things they did uh, for, for getting SG-1 and Atlantis novels out there was they went into the fan fiction community and found some of the, the, the best, most uh, reliable and, and solid writers and had them pitch ideas for novels that were published as official Stargate SG-1 Atlantis novels. Um, what do you think of this phenomenon? I mean, when does your creative work uh, cease to be fanfic and become a part of, of the official system? I would say when someone pays you. Yeah. As soon as you get that paycheck? Because if you get a paycheck, then your work has been legitimately copyrighted. Mm-hmm. Let's get one more listener mail in here, David, if you would read this. And then we'll let Louisa have the last word. RFL Sedai says, Fan fiction, when I discovered it, knocked me on my arse. Some of it showcased some truly creative and brilliant writing. Some of it had me running for the exit button. And there was plenty of entertainment in between. Fanfic offers a venue for all of us fans who continue to enjoy and play in the world we all love. For a show that is no longer on the air, no longer has any new material generated each week, I can go to get my proverbial fix. So what do you think, Louisa? Why do we Stargate fans love going beyond the television show, going beyond the discussion boards and reading and writing fan fiction? Just because there is so much more possible. Just because everything that can be addressed has not been addressed. And there's so much more that we could do, that the characters could do. There's so many more stories out there that we could tell. And the producers aren't going to be telling them, so why can't we tell them? You are listening to the Gateworld Podcast. 
Well, thanks once again to everybody for contributing to this week's main discussion, especially to Louisa for joining us. On extremely short notice. There are lots of really long, thoughtful uh, responses to our question of the week in the podcast feedback thread at GateWorld Forum. I encourage everybody to go and check those out. I apologize to those of you who wrote uh, longer essays who, who did not get included in the show this week. There's some good stuff out there to read. Uh, we have one more piece of voicemail this week. Let's hear it. Hey, Darren and Dave. This is Jeremy from Rexburg, Idaho. I was pondering on Merlin's phasing technology, which is heavily featured in Season 10 of Stargate SG-1 and Line in the Sand and The Road Not Taken, which both of which were used to shield against planetary bombardment from an Ori warship. But do you think that Merlin phasing technology was used to its full potential. The phasing tech could be used on one of our 304s to protect it from damage and to hide it. A phasing generator could be built into one of our nukes and phased after fire from our 304, ignoring any and all shields, armor, and hull, and detonating inside an Orite ship or Wraith Hive ship. Thank you, Jeremy and Idaho. Was the phasing technology used to its fullest? No. You introduce something like that, and it can become way too powerful. Because, yes, if you can cloak yeah. an entire planet, then you can phase out a 304. You'd want to have it on on one of those Daedalus-class ships immediately. It's like the Atlantis shield. When it's fully charged, it's way too powerful. Yeah, I think you and Jeremy are both right that it's something that you can't really keep around because it just makes us too powerful. And what it reminded me of is the technology that Tanith forced the Tolans to create. This was this was a gigantic bomb with their phase technology so yeah. that he could send it through the Earth iris. You know, it's one of those things where if you're in the universe, you ought to say to General Landry, hey, we ought to be putting this to use on board a ship. Yeah. We ought to think of clever ideas like this. That we can shoot at them and then flip it on and they can't shoot back at us because it just passes right through the ship or, or we go invisible. Phase technology, those things, you know, are always very sketchy. Because, and they make a com- the comment about it in, in Wormhole Extreme. If I'm out of phase, why don't I fall through the floor? <laughs> yeah. Or why don't I become weightless because gravity is no longer pulling on me? I like Star Trek's explanation for for why a ship cannot fire while it is cloaked, which is the power generation requirements are just too massive. So I like the idea that there's there's just sort of an impracticality about really implementing it on a on a military scale like that. But then of course you watch the road not taken and we can cloak an entire planet. So that sort of blows it all out the window. I never liked that that we could cloak a planet. But, good question. Thanks, Jeremy. What's this week's question? In regards to Stargate the Ark of Truth, which we are discussing on September 23rd, your question is, what did you think of the movie The Ark of Truth? Was it a satisfying conclusion to the Ori storyline? That'll wrap up the SG-1 portion of our long history of Stargate. We've already talked about Continuum. You can look for that in the archives of the podcast at gateworld.net slash podcast. And then September 30th is going to be our last show before the premiere of Stargate Universe, and we'll talk about Stargate Universe. The title is On the Eve of SGU. Then expect on October 7th, uh, your friendly Gate World podcasters, to discuss Air Parts 1 and 2, which will be airing back-to-back on Friday night, October the 2nd, on Sci-Fi Imagine Greater. Woo! That was a plug, if I ever heard one. Considering neither of us get sci-fi. <laughs> well, thanks once again for tuning in to this week's show. We had fun talking with Louisa Robison about Stargate fan fiction. Thanks once again to her and to everybody for contributing to that discussion. 
We gave you a preview of GateWorld's upcoming interview with Ivan Bartok. Look for that on the site in just a few days. And if you want some links to everything we talked about or anything we talked about, head over to GateWorld and look for the episode 60 show notes. We appreciate your feedback, so send us more on the hotline at 616-712-1647, or you can post it in the podcast feedback thread in GateWorld form or the show notes for podcast 60. From GateWorld, this is Darren. This is David. And we'll see you back here next week. 